Open our Bibles here together to Matthew chapter 17 this morning. Matthew 17. We are studying together through the Gospel of Matthew, and our main text for this morning is going to begin down in verse verses 14 and following, but I want to set the background by just reading from verse 1. Um, in fact, also by going back and reviewing verses 9 through 13, because we ran out of time, or I ran out of time <laughs> last week to, uh, to really give those verses, I think, what they're due. So we'll, we'll begin with those and then continue on with verse 14, but we'll start our reading Uh, here with the first 13 verses. After six days, this is of course the parallel to what we just read, so don't think we're repeating here. This is Matthew's account. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And Jesus came and touched them and said, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked Him, Why then do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And He answered, Elijah does come and He will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize Him, but did to Him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will suffer, will certainly suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that He was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Of course, on the mountaintop, these guys had had an experience that they would never forget. It would shape everything that was to come in their lives. Later, two of these three men, Peter and John, would write about it. They would all preach about it. They would talk about it. This glorious manifestation on the mountaintop, this transfiguration of Jesus Christ. It was at once both terrifying to them and glorious in their sight. They saw the glory of God and lived to tell about it because that glory of God was mediated to them in the person of Jesus Christ. They also, on the top of that mountain, saw Moses. And that whole experience was reminiscent of Moses' own journey to the top of the mountain way back in the Old Testament, Mount Sinai. When Moses went up on the mountain, you have these same things, right? There was a brilliant, bright light. There was an awesome voice, and there was a terrifying display of power. The Bible says that the people of Israel asked Moses that God would not speak to them anymore because they were so terrified when God's voice came to them, that God spoke to them from then on through Moses, even though Moses himself was 
fearful. Another gospel uh, says that actually while they were on the mountain, Jesus was talking with Moses about the exodus, about Jesus' departure. The word is for the word for exodus. And now here he is, this new Moses on the mountaintop, this new greater than Moses. But also accompanying him on the mountain were, was Elijah. And as the disciples came down from the mountain, they began to ask Jesus about Elijah and how he figures into this whole vision of the end time glorious kingdom of God. How does Elijah fit in? Elijah, the scribes say, Elijah's supposed to come first. Is this his appearing? What is this all about? They ask him in verse number 10. And, of course, there was a traditional Jewish belief that God would send the, um, Elijah again in the end times. Last week, we looked at the prophecy of this in Malachi chapter 4. I'm going to put it on the screen again here. And uh, I'm sorry, that is the incorrect reference and also the incorrect verse. There we go. Uh, here it is, the reference from Malachi. And actually, Malachi's prophecy uh, had to do with both Moses and Elijah. Very interestingly now, as we see them together with our Lord, uh, the Lord said to His people through the prophet Malachi, Remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb, or Mount Sinai, for all of Israel. He said then... Behold, I will send Elijah, Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And here is Elijah's ministry. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter desolation. And the, this was the prophecy, and the scribal interpretation was that, that, that God would send Elijah again in the last days, and they're wondering... Are the scribes right? Is this true? And Jesus' answer is yes, they are right in that sense. Elijah does come in the last days, and he will restore all things. And that's the nature of Elijah's ministry, right? You see it in the text here, and you see it in what Jesus says to um, notice in, in the text in Matthew, Elijah does come and he will restore. Elijah's ministry is a kind of ministry of restoration. Malachi said he will turn the hearts of the children, fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. He will bring restoration in families. In fact, Jesus says he enlarges it beyond just the, the family sphere. Jesus says that, that the, the beginning of this, uh, this end-time ministry, the, the kingdom of God is going to restore not just families, but restore everything. It's going to put everything back together that was broken by the fall. It's going to bring everything again into restoration with God, or it will crush any opposition to that restoration. That is the kingdom of God that would come. It was prophesied throughout the Scriptures. Jesus says, 
that the coming of Elijah will inaugurate the restoration of all things. That concept runs throughout the Old Testament, that God will come and restore. For example, many, many times the prophets would say that one day God will restore the fortunes of His people. This thread comes up again and again in many different prophets. God will restore again the fortunes of His people. They will again come and dwell in the land. They will be at rest finally. They will be uh, they will have a, a new temple, and they, they will be glorious and prosperous in the land once again. And you can imagine what a hope that was to people who were far away in Babylon, who were exiles, who were in chains, and their city was destroyed, and, and their people were a disgrace among the nations, that God would give them these kinds of, of promises. But then the prophets also say, surprisingly, that God will quote, restore the fortunes of other nations like Moab and Ammon and Elam, Jeremiah 48 and 49. God will restore His people. And then he begins to say, God will restore the fortunes of these other peoples. In fact, the restoration of Israel would be the restoration of the nations so that people from all nations would, when Israel is exalted, would stream into Jerusalem, come to worship in the new temple, would give praise to the God of heaven and be reconciled to Him so that the restored temple will become a house of prayer for all peoples, the prophets said. All peoples. This is an amazing thing. This is for people of Israel, right? This temple, it will become a place of worship for all peoples. Amos chapter 9 verse 12 said that when Israel is restored, quote, they will possess the remnant of Edom, one of the other countries, and all the nations who are called by my name. So when is that? Well, in Acts chapter 15, after Paul and Barnabas and Peter get up and give testimony that Gentile people are being converted to Jesus Christ and are coming in faith to Christ, James stands up, he quotes that prophecy in Amos and says it's being fulfilled right in front of us. Here we are, this great end-time kingdom of God the restoration of God's people, the rebuilding of a new temple and all of the peoples of the earth streaming in to be reconciled. It's the beginning of the restoration of the world that was lost in the fall, the beginning of the restoration of the world to God through His Son on His throne, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Now, that was inaugurated, I say, with the coming of Christ and the one who ran in front of the king to announce his coming, your king's coming, prepare the way, make way, was John the Baptist, that end-time Elijah who would inaugurate a period of global restoration. I say inaugurate because it's not Elijah himself who will be 
the restorer, but he must come first. He, he, is the, he is the one who begins this restoration. He's the forerunner, the herald, the one who prepares the way. There's another figure with Elijah in this end-time vision, and of course that was Moses. And if you remember the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, this is probably why Moses was on top of that mountain with Elijah, uh, with Elijah, um, because the prophecy in, in Deuteronomy 18 says that God will raise up a prophet like Moses, a new Moses, and the people will, must listen to him, and if they will not listen to that prophet, God will require it of him, and they will be accountable God said, you must listen to this great prophet. And now here Jesus is standing on top of the mountain and the voice of God from heaven says, this is my son, listen to him. Here he is, the new Moses who comes in the wake of Elijah who prepares the way, a new Moses comes to make a new covenant through which the whole world may be reconciled to God. But then you have this in verse 12. Now, if you're still looking at your Bibles, in verse number 12, he says, I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then they finally understood that he was speaking to them, not literally of Elijah, but of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Christ, the Messiah the one who would stand on the mountain and commune with God, who would bring down from the mountain not a law written on the tablets of stone, but a law written in the hearts of men would be transformed by His grace. That Son of Man must be crucified and suffer and die. It finally dawned on these guys, I think, that John the Baptist was that end-time Elijah. Not literally Elijah. John the Baptist denied himself that he was Elijah, but that he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Luke chapter 1, verse 17. And that Christ was that great end-time prophet. He is the king to which all Israel's kings pointed. He's the priest to which all of Israel's priests pointed. And he is the great prophet of God to whom all of Israel's prophets pointed. And though the end time Elijah had come, and though the new Moses was standing in front of them, he says, yet the end is not yet. The end is not yet. Because John has been killed by King Herod. To the delight of the Jews, they did to him whatever they wished. And Jesus himself would face the same fate pretty soon. In other words, this restoration of all things would have to wait for its final consummation. And indeed, Peter would say in a very short time, look at this. This is in Acts chapter 3, if I can get the right place where Peter is preaching about this vision that he has seen, he says, repent and turn back, uh, repent and turn back 
so that your sins may be blotted out, he preaches to the Jews, that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom he said heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So he views it as a future thing yet. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and you shall listen to him, whatever he tells you. This is, of course, the quotation that we've seen from from Deuteronomy 18, and it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So here's what I think is happening. While the end time restoration of all things under the kingdom of Christ has begun, we still wait for and long for and hope for and pray for the day when God's kingdom comes and His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. We're waiting for that Lord Jesus to return who will bring the consummation to everything that He has begun in us and in His people. We look to the skies, waiting for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, that day when He will return, not as a suffering lamb, but as a conquering king, a lion of Judah. He will make all things new in that day. That day when even creation itself will be among those All things that are restored. Even our bodies are restored and glorified. Even the creation rejoices when the sons of God are revealed at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a day when everything that's broken in the world, everything that you've experienced that has been broken, that's touched your life, will be taken away. Now, All of the brokenness will be made whole again. And all that's been separated from God will be united again in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when every human being who looks to God by faith in Christ will enter into eternal unbroken communion with God, the kind of joy that you just now experience only so fleetingly, an unbroken joy and communion with God in the restoration of all things at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we say, come Lord Jesus. Amen? Come quickly. Jesus says, these things must happen. In fact, they've already begun. John heralded the way. Now the glory they experience on the mountain is in an incredible contrast to what they find when they come down off the mountain. And maybe it's good that we didn't finish last week so you can see this contrast. Because they walk down from glory to failure still here on earth. And 
we see verse 14. Let's start reading there now. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, and they said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. They came down from the mountain of glory and they found unbelief. And isn't that exactly what Moses also experienced when he came down off of Mount Sinai. You remember the story? He came down to a faithless generation. He called them in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, a crooked and twisted generation. The very same word that Jesus uses when he comes down off the mountain to look at the generation of his day. And you know, it maybe is kind of surprising when you read a text like this. It is I mean, this frustration of Jesus is a kind of rare glimpse of raw human emotion on the part of the Son of God at the unbelief that he encounters among the Jews of his day. He's not just, when he makes these exclamations here, he's not just frustrated with what he calls the little faith of his disciples in verse 20, or frustrated with the wavering faith of the man who brought his son for healing. Jesus asked him about this healing, and the man said, well, if you can do anything. He said, if I can, you have to believe. So, so he's experienced... He, 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 he's, he's met with, with, with little faith on the part of his apostles, with, with wavering faith on the part of this man, but he's really grieved by the utter unbelief of that entire generation of Jews who would reject him as their Messiah, by and large. In fact, like, very like, the generation that Moses confronted when he came down off the mountain, who died in the wilderness, who were obliterated by God because they would not listen to Moses. And of course, the writer of Hebrews, we read it a couple weeks ago, says, how much more those who will not listen to the voice of the Son of God. And so he expresses this frustration with the unbelief of that wicked generation who had more testimony 
in their midst from God than any generation of Jews up to that point. The very Son of God stood in their midst. God in flesh. And they were so hardened against God, so full of unbelief, that they crucified Him. So in that context, it's no wonder, right, that He he speaks like He does. But this really becomes, in the end, a lesson for Jesus' disciples. And in, in that light, it's a lesson for all of us who would be his disciples. In the absence of Peter and James and John and Jesus, apparently while they're up on the mountain, the other nine disciples have been attempting to cast out this demon. And we read earlier that Jesus had given them authority to do this. This demon was at work in this boy and causing him all kinds of um, trouble and and moving this boy to to try to harm himself, um, giving him uh, symptoms similar to epilepsy. But of course, the real source in this case, in this particular case, was not a brain, but a spirit, that is an evil spirit. And the boy's father brought him to Jesus' disciples. And that's important because it highlights the wonderful power of the ministry of intercession for the people that we love. You never read in the Scriptures about a demon-possessed person coming to Jesus for healing, for deliverance. In every case, they're brought by someone who loves them, who pleads their case before the Lord Jesus, or Jesus just goes out of his way to to just show sovereign mercy on these people. And, and, And there are people around us that are so ensnared by the devil, that, that they would never um, come, to, come to the Lord. True of all of us, of course, in, to one, in one sense, but, but these people are, are just so ensnared that the, the only hope for them, they would never pray for their souls, they would assume that, uh, that they're beyond hope or that they're not in need of any hope, but because of the prayers of people who love them, who will not let the Lord go, Perhaps the Lord may be gracious and deliver them from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so the man brings his son, and he, Jesus is gone, so he brings him to these nine other disciples. And, of course, what happens? They fail miserably, fail to cast out the demon, fail to give any relief to the boy, fail to help this father to get what he is asking the Lord for. And so Jesus has to do it for them. Verse 18, to continue our reading, Matthew 17, 18, And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and he healed the boy instantly. I guess we already read these. The disciples came to Jesus. Why could we not cast him out? And what is his answer? Because of your little faith. Your little faith. 
That phrase we've seen already in Matthew. We've seen it now three times. Three different times Jesus has chided His disciples for their little faith. And I want to talk about that for a moment. Because I don't think that Jesus' main point is about the amount of their faith. I don't think that's his, really his, the main idea that he's trying to get across. Because, in fact, he says, if you have faith like this, like a little mustard seed, you can move mountains with it. It's not the amount. In fact, in Luke 17, in Luke's account, Jesus gives the same answer when they say, Lord, increase our faith. He says, no, if you have faith like a mustard seed, it'll be done. So, in that sense, I don't think the main point is about the amount of faith. The problem is the the object of their faith. It's not little faith in terms of the quantity so much as it's little faith in terms of its quality. It is dependence on anything other than Christ that makes it a a little kind of faith. It is is a transference of some little bit of our dependence from Him to something else so that we are hoping in Christ, but we're also leaning a little bit on our own understanding, as it were. That makes it little faith. It is getting our eyes off Christ and off dependence on Him and onto something else. Like when Peter was on the waves and he stops thinking about his Lord and starts thinking about himself and his circumstances. That makes it little faith. When we have little faith, we forget that we are utterly dependent and that Christ is supremely sufficient. So that to grow in faith is not so much in an increase in the amount of some substance within us as it is to be increasingly dependent, to be increasing in our sense of our dependence on and our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, these men had cast out demons before. This is, their, you know, this is not their first rodeo. That's what I was trying to think of, rodeo. They'd done this before. They'd seen miracles. Matthew records that Jesus had already given them authority over the spirits. They'd already been sent out into Israelite cities to cast out demons. So what's going on now? I think perhaps they'd become presumptive. Just sort of presuming that things would go as a matter of course. Just as they'd always done before. Like, um, a little bit like Samson in the Old Testament. Remember God gave him supernatural strength. And of course he had a vow before God that he would never cut his hair. And... We all know the story of Samson and Delilah. In the course of that relationship, he abandons his vow to God. He dishonors God. She cuts his hair. But then what does he do? The Philistines come to attack him like they have many, many times before. And the scripture says that she 
said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he woke from his sleep, the Bible says, and he said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free of them. And he did not know that the Lord had left him. I think it is possible, and perhaps in the same way that the disciples were perplexed, because here they've cast out demons many, many times before. And of course, we can cast out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. And here they come to cast them out as at other times before. And and this time, something's different. Which is a reminder to us, friends, that there's nothing automatic about the power of Jesus Christ. It is not something to be taken for granted that God will be powerfully at work in us or through us. And just saying in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers doesn't necessarily show that we're really depending on Him. And so what Christ does in this text is to graciously reveal to them their lack of faith. In this case, He reveals it to them through a very public failure and censure. Nobody likes to fail. We don't like to be seen to really struggle and not be able to accomplish something, especially in public. You ever had that happen? You ever had it happen spiritually? You ever had it happen as you've tried to do what God commanded you to do and you failed? Your failure was apparent to those around you maybe? I tell you, it would be better for us though to fail than to go on in apparent success through dependence on our flesh. Have you ever stopped to think that God's graciously using your failure, your depression, your anger, your frustration to display what you're really trusting in? Or to bring you to a greater, more consistent, more earnest sense of dependence on Him? That's what He's doing with these guys. And I think another clue that the main issue is really not so much a quantity of faith, but the object of their faith, is that in Mark, Jesus, the the passage we read earlier, Jesus ties their lack of faith to a lack of what? Y'all remember? He said, this kind will not come out but by prayer. So that apparently these men had almost fallen into a kind of automatic going about the work of God as if, of course, it will happen because it's always happened and grown cold in their prayers, grown very short or anemic in their prayers. We're just depending on going through the motions, their own matter, of course, in in name-giving giving credit to the Lord Jesus, but without real persevering, earnest prayer. 
Though they may have cast out some demons through the prayer that they no doubt had already made. Jesus had said, for this kind of demon, they're going to need to really persevere in prayer. In fact, some of the manuscripts add prayer with fasting. Jesus said, some kind of demons will not go out, but by prayer, persevering, I mean, fasting kind of, I mean, just intense, earnest, prolonged prayers. Prayer, because prayer is a manifestation of the fact that we need the Lord. And there are times when we fail to believe that we cannot accomplish something. We just sort of fall into this thing that because we've we've trained three other kids before, that we can train a fourth one. Or because we've preached so many sermons that, of course, we can get up and preach another one. Because we've just done it so many other times and it, it worked okay. Because we've, we've served the Lord in some way, because we've gone out and we've ministered, or we've done this or we've done that, and, and it went, went all right, that of course it'll go all right next time because it's just that's the way it's always been. Rather than an intense realization of my absolute dependence on God to do something that I cannot do myself. That's what prayer is. Prayer is saying, I cannot without you. Prayer is a sense of my dependence, and prayer is a sense of God's ability. Prayer is an act of faith. We fail to believe how important it is for us at times to persevere in prayer in order to accomplish anything for God. You know, it it is an act of faith. Spending time in prayer feels like a waste to the flesh. It feels like, I don't know if you've ever felt this in in your, some part of you that's abhorrent to you, but when you get down to pray, and your soul says, you've got so much to do. You need to be busy. You need to be about things. You've got to do this, and you've got to do that. And it feels like you're wasting time because you're doing nothing except beseeching someone to do something for you. That's the point of prayer. Prayer is dependence. Somebody said prayer. The heart of prayer is desperation. God, I need you. So when we are not earnest in our prayers, when we are not persevering in our prayers, when we're not intent in our prayers, it is so often a manifestation of a lack of faith. Faith that we cannot do whatever it is apart from God. But that God can and only God can. And it's a consciousness of our failures, actually, that drives us to our knees. Have you ever found this? That when that you pray more consistently, and you pray more persistently, and you pray more earnestly after you've experienced failure because of depending on self rather than depending on God. I mean, failure has a way of keeping prayer from being just the mouthing of words. Failure has a way of stripping away the formalities of prayer and making prayer something that sounds a whole lot more like the prayers of the Psalms, you know, that it comes from our hearts and that we're pleading with God and we're begging and we're, we're pouring out our souls in anguish to the Lord. 
I mean, failure has a way of making prayers a lot more earnest. And so I thank God for, for that, for it'd be better to go that way than to be to go on apparent success and trusting myself. Let us not presume that we don't need to pray in order to work and do our work in a godly way. And get up and go to work nine to five and just presume that because we have certain abilities and certain skills that we can just get the job done in a way that is good. Let us not presume that we can do our work without God dependence. Let us not presume that our pastor will prepare good messages just because, well, he studied the Bible or, you know, he, he, he worked hard on writing the sermon down. Unless the Spirit comes and uses it, it is all in vain. It is. Believe, let us believe that. If we believe it, we will pray. Let us not presume to think that to see the lost delivered from the power of Satan is just a matter, of course, of getting the right presentation, saying the right things. Let us be always reminded that we are utterly dependent on the power of God. We should come to pray with the attitude that I'm seeking the Lord because if He is not for me, then I am damned. If He doesn't keep me, I will fall. If He doesn't preserve me and sanctify me, then there is no hope for me. If God doesn't work through me, then all of my efforts will be utterly meaningless. If God doesn't work in my kids' hearts, then all of my training of them will only produce self-righteous Pharisees. If God doesn't work in my Sunday school class, then all of my teaching will only produce a bunch of intellectual know-it-alls. If God doesn't do a work, then all of our work is for nothing. And the more we can see that, the the more we have the opportunity to grow deeper in our dependence and our faith in the Lord. We have too high a view of our own abilities to quote-unquote do something for God. We forget that He says, without me you can do. In my flesh there is no good thing. Unless the Lord builds the house they labor in, Vain that build it. It's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. You have not because you... Yeah, we forget. We just get up and we get ready to go through our day, to teach our children, to go out and work, to labor for the Lord, and with hardly a thought of our dependence and the power and the glory of Jesus Christ to accomplish things that are utterly impossible for man. And nothing drives us to prayer like seeing our failures, like God causing our sinfulness to dawn on us in a new way. Or His putting trials in our lives that are beyond our human ability to bear joyfully. Or by His giving us a calling that requires an ability beyond our natural capacity. But my encouragement then 
from this text is that you let these things be for you. A grace that causes you to cast yourself upon the mercies of God with renewed vigor. To plead your case through the blood of Jesus. To rejoice in the promised power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, that you and I might with more consistency and more earnestness cast ourselves on God alone. Let's pray. Father, deliver us from our self-sufficiency and our lack of prayer, our little faith. Please let us fail if that's what it takes. But please, Lord, even in our failures, we ask You to be merciful and to uphold us that we would not be lost, but that we may grow. We ask it in Jesus' name.